Hey everyone, welcome to the third episode of Buckalter's Automated and Intelligent Systems Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Eric Kennedy, a shareholder at Buckalter, specializing in litigation in the automotive industry as well. And I'm joined by uh, two co-hosts. And I'm Paul Fradenberg. I'm a shareholder at Buckalter as well, and a litigator, and also co-chair of the Autonomous Vehicles and Artificial Intelligence Practice Group. Hey everyone, Danielle Mayer. I'm an associate at Buckalter, specializing in business litigation with a focus on autonomous vehicles. So, as we thought about our episode today, a story came to mind that happened to me recently. I've got a few kids, and uh, one of the games that I've played with my kids is, I think it's called the telephone game, where you sit around in a circle and someone whispers into someone else's ear something. And as that message gets passed around the circle and it comes back to the original person, the game is to figure out if that message is still the same or if it's changed somewhere along the way. And inevitably, it changes and almost always significantly and usually in some hilarious way. And so what we thought we'd talk about today is the messaging that's out there as it relates to autonomous vehicles and some of the issues that arise in the context of messaging that manufacturers and defense lawyers might want to be aware of and be thinking about. And some of this arises from a recent conference that we attended and spoke at in Novi, Michigan that relates to autonomous vehicles, where we talked about uh, some of the current challenges in defending autonomous vehicle litigation. And one of those, obviously, was the messaging. So I'm going to start with something that everyone is familiar with, and that is when you buy a car, you get an owner's manual. And the question is, are the owner's manuals in the traditional sense enough, provide enough of information, enough training for a manufacturer to point to the owner's manual or whatever else is provided to the consumer prior to and during purchase and after purchase as a defense if litigation arises with respect to that particular product. Um, So I'll open it up here to the group. Give your thoughts about whether we think the current messaging, at least with respect to owner's manuals and consumer training, is having a good, bad, or neutral impact. So yeah, Eric, I'll start with that question. So obviously all of our listeners out there are thinking to themselves right now, of course I read the entire owner's manual when I bought my car. Who doesn't do that, right? Um, no, of course, none of us have ever probably even opened it unless we were trying to figure out you know, how to adjust the air conditioning when we couldn't find the button or something silly like that. So the problem that you're identifying, I think, is a real one, which is that cars, when we talk about the technology that's going to be in cars in the future and that's being put in cars now to make them more autonomous is a a technology that people generally don't understand. They don't understand how it works. Manufacturers, the way manufacturers communicate to their customers is not primarily through their owner's manuals. It's through their marketing messaging. And I think we all sort of have come to accept that. And when somebody buys a car, your friend buys a car that you saw an advertisement for, you say, oh, that's the truck that has the the truck bed that does all the cool stuff, right? You know that not because you read the owner's manual for that truck, but because you saw an advertisement and you, you associated it with that. So I think the answer to that question, you know, to start with is that the communication needs to start with the marketing messaging and not just with the manuals or other literature that you're providing to an actual purchaser. Yeah, I agree with that. And there's kind of a competing interest because you have the manufacturer's advertising arm that wants to get across the message that's going to be most appealing to the consumer. And then you have the obligation 
to provide real actual information about how the product operates and works. I think what we have to do, there's definitely no way or reason to get away from owner's manuals generally, but I think we have to update the way we think about owner's manuals and how we give information to the consumers, both in the context of an owner's manual, and there are a lot of manufacturers out there right now that are doing digital owner's manuals or owner's manuals that are interactive through an app on your phone that make it much more user-friendly and much more likely that a user is, is going to rely on the information. But we also can talk about other things that manufacturers can do that will ultimately help them to defend against these claims in the context of the purchasing experience. And one thing that I thought of or, or someone suggested to me that I'm taking credit for is maybe we do some sort of training at the dealership. And what I mean by that is everyone has had the experience where they've gone to a dealership to turn in their lease or to buy a new car or for whatever reason, dreading the experience generally, knowing that they're going to have a lot of downtime sitting in the lobby, old coffee, stale donuts, staring out the window while someone tries to figure out the financing issues. And maybe that's a good time, a more effective use of time to start doing some more specific training, especially as it relates to autonomous vehicles. So I can envision a scenario where you walk into a dealership with the idea of purchasing a car that has some sort of autonomous technology and before you can drive off the lot with that car you have to go through some sort of online tutorial that runs through the technology and how it works and what it does and what it doesn't do maybe more importantly you have to acknowledge that maybe even the the dealer is videotaping you taking that tutorial online and all of this ultimately becomes an exhibit in the litigation later on to show that whatever it was that the consumer is saying he or she thought the car could or couldn't do now, at the time that they purchased it, they were given all the information that they needed to develop an expectation about what the technology was capable of or not capable of. And you can play that video as exhibit number one to the jury to show, and here's our consumer, and they sat through a 10-minute tutorial, and they clicked through, and they took a test, and at the end, and they passed, and we gave them the key, and, and that when they drove off the lot, at that moment, they had an expectation, or they had a reasonable understanding of what the technology was capable of or wasn't capable of. The problem with that, obviously, is that manufacturers and dealers operate independently on some level. And the last thing the dealer wants to do is create a situation where the consumer is going to say, oh, I have to take a test, forget it, I don't want to buy this car. So there's a little bit of tension there, but I think at the end of the day, when I consider the relative impact of the burden versus the benefit, it seems to me that the manufacturer should be thinking about ways like that, creative ways like that, to strengthen the argument down the road that we did everything we could to provide adequate, comprehensive, meaningful messaging to this consumer before he or she drove mile number one in their autonomous car. I also think that speaks to a larger society issue that we need to make sure that society as a whole understands the expectation for autonomous vehicles. So it's not just people buying the cars, it's people driving on the road with autonomous vehicles that are not autonomous vehicle drivers. They're pedestrians. People just in normal society need to understand how these vehicles, their limitations, their advantages. And we were discussing prior to the podcast is maybe some sort of PSA or something like the government ran for seatbelts where it's not just the person buying the car that goes in and takes a test, because that's a pretty narrow market at this point. And there are going to be a lot more issues between autonomous vehicles versus 
non-autonomous vehicles, autonomous vehicles versus pedestrian, and we really need to educate the public. I think there's a perception that there are autonomous vehicles on the road right now that are fully automated, and there are arguments against that and for that, but I think that's something that everyone needs to understand for the safety of everyone in society. Yeah, and all of it really boils down to, at least on a litigation perspective, defending these kinds of claims and being able to say with a straight face that we did everything we could to make sure that the messaging was accurate and available and maybe on some level universal so that not only, and I think Danielle makes a great point, not only the driver but also the people that are in and around the car have a good understanding of what the cars are capable of. And to turn back to something you said, Paul, about the advertising, what do you think that the manufacturers can do from an advertising perspective that will help them years down the road if and when they get involved in litigation relating to their autonomous technology. Well, yeah, and you know, we're, we're biased because the three of us are defense attorneys. And we look at this from a perspective of, you know, all of us have been there in trial when a document gets presented that is a statement that one of our clients have made somehow, sometimes in a very casual, you know, it could be a tweet or it could be an advertisement it was only run, you know, for a very short period of time in a small market, but it says something that's contrary to the overall message that we are trying to express in that trial. And so manufacturers need to lay the groundwork now to not give plaintiff's attorneys those weapons to use against their defense attorneys, you know, two years, three years, five years, ten years down the line, because that's how far back these plaintiff's attorneys will go. I love the idea of a public service announcement of getting the government involved ultimately as automated vehicles become more prevalent on the road. The problem is if the manufacturer's advertising is contrary to or not consistent with those public service announcements, you know, things saying, hey, remember that even if you buy an automated vehicle, it doesn't mean that you can take your eyes off the road, things like that. If we have any contrary messaging from the advertising, the plaintiff's attorneys are just going to use that too. They're going to say, look, you even advertised that this was, quote, crash proof or whatever it is that, you know, any sort of outlandish statements that are made about what this will be. And unfortunately, I think some of the messaging that's taken place, not by the manufacturers necessarily, but just in general, maybe even in the news about what they expect these autonomous vehicles to be, has been unrealistic so far. And, and it shouldn't be a situation where we're promising the public this is a crash-proof technology. I think manufacturers need to invest heavily in this idea of under-promise and over-deliver when it comes to what autonomous technology can do so that we as defense attorneys are equipped equipped with that and can go into court and say, not only did we implement training programs or something else that educates every single purchaser about what this is, over and beyond your traditional idea of an owner's manual, but we also educated the public. So from the moment this person saw an advertisement on TV about our vehicle, they knew that we, we weren't making any claims about what this does. So I think there's a, a balance there, and I think it's important for every manufacturer to err on the side of under-promising with respect to this particular technology. I can imagine the advertising executives cringing when they hear the under-promise <laughs> admonition. Uh, they, I don't know if they want to underperform, but they definitely want to over-promise. So we have this tension that's created where you have the in-house legal department and the in-house marketing department trying to figure out what is the message that we can and should send to the public. 
our consumers and the public generally about our technology. Another issue that we discuss that might help as you formulate that messaging is to involve early and often jury focus groups. I know that focus groups are done routinely in the advertising context and in the automotive advertising context for sure. Is there a way to incorporate within the existing framework for focus groups or in a a second or supplementary framework, a jury type focus group where within the focus group, the, the individuals are presented with questions that might relate more to a legal side of things so that can help the manufacturer to understand what sort of message is being given to the consumer and to the public um, from the perspective of liability. And this really is borne out in something that has getting increasing attention in the defense world, and that is what is the proper test to apply when you're dealing with a design defect claim in a product liability case. The two tests that are out there, or at least that are most prevalent, are the consumer expectation test and the risk utility test. The consumer expectation test essentially says a product is designed defectively if it fails to meet the consumer's reasonable expectation about how it's going to perform. And the risk utility test essentially analyzes whether or not a product is defective based on balancing the risks that are inherent in the design with the utility that is also provided by the design. And we have been talking about how there is an evolution in how those tests are being treated in the context of the product liability litigation. What are your thoughts about that, Paul? I'll play devil's advocate with respect to the overall approach to you know the conversation on these two tests. In general, the risk utility test is considered to be more pro-manufacturer because if the manufacturer can prove that their product presents extensive benefits, then they can say, look, these benefits really do outweigh the risks, even though there are risks of danger presented by this product. On the other hand, if you leave it to this idea of an ordinary consumer, the uh, criticism of that test in the context of high technology or or, uh, complicated technology has been that ordinary consumers really don't understand complex uh, systems and technology, particularly in this context where even the lawyers in the courtroom in general will be relying on engineering experts to explain exactly how automated vehicle technology works because it really is complicated stuff. My devil's advocate approach, though, is that I don't know that we, as defense attorneys, want the risk-benefit analysis to apply. We may want the ordinary consumer analysis to apply. And there's some reasons there. The ordinary uh, consumer probably has an expectation that their car will do certain things and not do certain things, and probably has somewhat reasonable expectations compared with what we may ultimately face a plaintiff's attorney saying a car should have done. An example would be, you're gonna have a consumer who's involved in a crash, who's sitting on the stand, who says, look, I expected that this car could drive itself. They told me it was a self-driving car. I expected that it was crash-proof. And the truth is that if the manufacturers do their job at the outset, like we're talking about, and do not conflate this messaging with you know, uh, over-promising, <laughs> as we're talking about, um, and if there are public service announcements or other efforts to educate the public, then the ordinary consumer really should never at any point say, we expected this car to be crash-proof and that that was a reasonable expectation. So it may actually work to the manufacturer's benefit to apply the, what is considered to be the more draconian of the two tests. Yet another controversial idea from Paul Freyman. <laughs> um, thanks. <laughs> that is a really interesting point. Um, it, it is definitely the case 
at least as it hits close to home for us in the Ninth Circuit, that the risk utility test is being more often applied in the context of product liability cases, especially when it relates to complicated technology and and especially as it relates to autonomous technology. I suppose there is a chance that depending on how good manufacturers and and potentially other um, messengers get at explaining clearly and concisely uh, how the technology actually works, then it could be that we, we see sort of a swing back to the consumer expectation test, but only because the messaging has been so good. And maybe that means on some level that the manufacturers need to get together and cooperate or collaborate on how this messaging goes because the better the information is, generally the better off each, each of them are individually and collectively based on you know, their ability to, to defend design defect claims. Do you have any thoughts about it, Danielle? Yeah, I definitely think that a united front would, is probably the best approach um, in this world that Paul envisions with the consumer expectation. I think the problem with the risk utility benefit is that a plaintiff lawyer is going to get up and say, this had a huge risk. This pedestrian is dead today because this car did not have enough training or did not have enough testing involved. And what is the utility of it. We have drivers that drive around with cars all day. Um, and so I think that's going to be a really tough uphill battle for defense attorneys to say, yeah, this autonomous vehicle, it was nice to not have to have our hands on the wheel for a time versus the catastrophic effects that can happen as a result of that. So I do think that uh, back to our theme of messaging, you could probably move to a consumer expectation test that would be appropriate. There's probably going to be a day where most consumers understand the limitations of autonomous vehicles. And of course, the issue with that is going to be a moving target. So as the autonomous vehicles, as we move into actual autonomous vehicles, it's kind of a misnomer talking about it now, but as we move into level four and five vehicles, consumer expectations will probably change and it's going to be an evolving expectation. Just like now we have, like Paul said, we have cars that signal when you have a car in your blind spot. There was not that expectation even 10, 15 years ago. So it's always going to be a moving target. Yeah, really interesting point. It occurs to me that as we talk about it, there's there's sort of a default rule among the defense bar about how uh, when the tests, the consumer expectation test or the risk utility test applies. And right now that rule is, is essentially, very basically put, if an expert is required to explain it, then a consumer probably can't have a reasonable expectation about how the technology is supposed to operate. And it could be down the road that we get to a point where the experts aren't required. I I think that we'll probably be using experts for a while now. But it ultimately illustrates the point that we started off with and that we'll end with, which is all of these issues revolve around the notion of messaging and making sure that the messaging that goes out um, to consumers and to the public generally is accurate and useful and helpful, not just because we want to create you know, viable defenses to litigation down the road. But more important than that is because this technology is fantastic and wonderful, and all three of us are 100% on board with the idea that it will reduce accidents, reduce fatalities, and overall create a more safe driving environment. So outside of the litigation, we want to make sure that we are advocating for this technology, for its increased advancement and deployment, and 
and use because we see it being such a valuable add to our overall driving experience, uh, especially here in Southern California where we spend an awful lot of time in our cars. So that's episode three. We really appreciate your time. And anything else from you two? All right. Thanks very much.